great day today because you're going to get out on time. I'm going to guarantee you that. You know why? I'm not preaching. That's how that works. Uh, we are blessed to have many pastors uh, here on our staff, and uh, uh, every once in a while it's just good for me to take a break. Has anybody done your job for a long time and you just need to put your brain in neutral? I preach better after the weeks that I put my brain in neutral. My brain is officially in neutral this week. And uh, we have our newest pastor. We made him a pastor about a month ago uh, as, as, as just a, a thank you for his great work here at our church. Uh, but he's going to come and preach to you after I pray for him. Can we pray for him? Hey, God, thanks so much for a chance to just uh, open your word now. Uh, we want always, God, when we come to your word, to be challenged by it and changed by it. Uh, for that to happen, you've got to get whoever's speaking out of the way. I pray that you do that for Travis now. You just push him aside and speak in, your, speak in his place uh, so that we can hear what you want for us. Uh, teach us, God, uh, to not just be hearers of the word, to be, do, be doers of it, to not just say that we're Christians, but to live like we are. And uh, thanks for this message that we're going to hear now, and I pray it all in Jesus' name. Everybody said? This is our newest pastor here at Bay Life Church. Everybody give it up for Travis Lowe. Well, Bay Life, it is good to be with you this morning. As Mark said, my name is Travis Lowe, and I am the college and career ministry pastor here at Bay Life. And so for those of you who don't know what that entails necessarily, basically that means that I have the uh, blessing, honor, and privilege of meeting and studying scripture with and praying with and worshiping with the 18 to 25-year-old demographic here at our church on Sunday nights and throughout the rest of the week. Uh, and can I just say that it's one of the greatest joys in my life to have the opportunity to do that and to sit down with people who are my peers in many ways and just talk about what the call of scripture is on our lives and what it looks like for us as we move into being husbands and wives and fathers and mothers and the next generation of church leaders, what that looks like for us to carry the torch of the gospel forward. Uh, and I'm so grateful that we're a part of a church that places such a great emphasis on our family ministries, our children's ministry, middle school ministry, high school ministry, college and young adults. Uh, Baylife ex expends great resources on these ministries and they place a great deal of emphasis on them. And I'm so, so very thankful that for that, and, and that's not just because it gives me a job, although I love my job, uh, but I'm, I'm thankful for it because in many ways I am the product of these ministries. Uh, I know that I know a great deal of the people in this room and, and have grown up with a great deal of the people in this room, uh, but much of, if not all, of my Christian life has been spent here at Bay Life. I grew up kind of in a mainline denomination until about the fifth or the sixth grade, but, but by then my family was firmly rooted here. And so I learned what it meant to serve as a middle schooler by helping out with the tech ministry uh, over in kids' church. Uh, I can't do that anymore because technology has moved past my limited understanding of it, and so I don't know how to work the stuff over there anymore. But I learned what it meant to serve through that ministry of Bay Life. And then in high school, the first time that I ever went out of the country on, on any kind of missions work was under the ministry of Steve Frizzell, who was our high school pastor at the time. It was the first time I met believers from other parts of the world. The first time I got the opportunity to lead worship was when Paul Humphreys decided that with a lot of singing lessons, I might not do such a bad job. And so he gave me the opportunity to lead. The first opportunity that I got to preach was when Chris Groover took a week off and asked if I would be willing to preach through the first chapter of James. And so I have grown up here. And and. For better or for worse, I think mostly for better, I'm a product of the ministries here at Bay Life Church. 
And I hope that doesn't frighten you. <laughs> I hope that's exciting. I think I came out all right. But, but in reality, I grew up in the church. I, I grew up in a Christian home. I grew up going to a Christian school up the road. I grew up attending church. Some of us here came to Christ in our 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, maybe even later. And so there was a period of time between your birth and now where you didn't walk with the Lord. For me, I'm not saying I was born a Christian because it doesn't work that way, but it's hard for me to remember a time where I didn't consider myself a Christian. Uh, Not only that, but I cannot count the number of times I've prayed the sinner's prayer just in case the last time didn't quite quite work out. And so I've, I've prayed it hundreds of times. You only need, you only needs to happen once. But, uh, but that's just my background. And so having grown up in a Christian home, at a Christian school, going to a church that faithfully proclaims the scriptures and the gospel, uh, it's afforded me this interesting experience in that up until seventh grade when I switched from a private school to Progress Village, pretty much everybody I had contact with was a Christian. I realized very quickly that my small bubble of a world did not represent the rest of the world at large. And there are much fewer Christians in the whole world than there were in my little world. I learned that real fast. Uh, But because it was something I was passionate about, even if I didn't have a full understanding of it, and because it was something I cared about, I tended to be drawn towards other people who had similar convictions. And so in middle school, I had friends who weren't Christians, but I had a lot of friends who were. And in high school, I, I had some great friends who weren't believers, but I had a lot of friends who were. And with the advent of social media, the level of contact that you have with people you graduated from high school with, uh, that used to be something, like a contact that was either established through deep friendships or high school reunions, that doesn't really matter anymore because you can pretty much catch up with anybody anytime. You just find them on Facebook or shoot them an email. And so I've had this interesting opportunity to see what it looks like for faith to grow and to develop and to mature from a very young age to the point at which many of my friends who were self-identified Christians graduated from their parents' home and, and graduated high school and moved out into the world. And so I've seen how faith reacts when it is faced with the harsh realities of life. Now, if you are familiar with some of the statistics that have come out recently concerning the millennial generation, which I would fall into roughly, Uh, The reality is that they're kind of discouraging statistics to read. One that I heard recently was something to the effect of only 17% of people my age who have grown up in the church will remain part of a church actively once they graduate high school and college. The rest will go kind of in a scattershot of directions. Some will move towards kind of a philosophical naturalism, and they may become atheists or agnostics and decide that they're not concerned with anything spiritual. Or some uh, may lean more towards Eastern religions, and so they might be drawn to the philosophies of Buddhism or Hinduism or those philosophical uh, outlooks. And some might fall into the New Age religious movement somewhere. Some of them kind of take on this weird pseudo-spirituality where there's something out there. Maybe it's aliens. I don't really care anyways. Back to my cheeseburger. That kind of a mentality. And and statistically, that seems to be the case. It doesn't really represent my experiences, though. My experience has been this. There's really three paths people go. Uh, Once they graduate, they either completely run from all things faith-related. Sometimes that's because of wounds, and sometimes that's because of intellectual doubts or whatever that might be. Uh, There are people who stay the course. But then there's also a great number of people that I've known throughout my life as a Christian, who continue on, they graduate from high school and they move on to college, 
but they never, after moving out of their childhood church, plug into another church. They never fill the gaping hole that was left when their youth group was no longer for them and it was for the next generation of high schoolers. And so uh, the, the thing that's interesting here is they won't tell you they're not Christians. If somebody asks this kind of a person in my experience, are you religious, are you spiritual, do you, what do you believe? I, yeah, I'm a Christian, I believe Jesus died for me, I believe the Bible is God's word. They, they have all these convictions, but they've severed themselves from the waters of church life. And so what tends to happen is that when they're no longer sitting under the preaching of God's word week in and week out, and when they're no longer subjected to accountability uh, and to conviction that comes from believers spurring each other on, and when they no longer worship publicly with other Christians, and they no longer come to the table of the Lord, like any tree cut off from water, their Christian life begins to shrivel in some ways. And it gets to the point to where if you ask them, are you a Christian, they'll emphatically respond, yes, I am. But the actions that accompany their life are so detached from what the word Christian means that you begin to wonder why they keep the name at all. Now, I'm not so arrogant as to think that my generation is the only one that deals with that. I think that's a little bit foolhardy to think that way. I recognize that this has been a problem for the Christian church since the beginning of the Christian church. And we're fortunate that the Lord saw fit to give us a rich history of believers grappling with this question. What does it mean to be a Christian and not simply be called a Christian? There's a group of Christian leaders within the historical fields of study, they're called the Church Fathers. If you grew up in a Catholic church or an Orthodox church, you might be familiar with some of them. The Church Fathers were the generation of disciples who were disciples of the disciples. So let me explain that so we don't play word games here. When Peter and John and Paul and the rest of the apostles were commissioned to go and spread the gospel, they took people under their wings and they trained them up. You see Paul's relationship with Timothy in the New Testament, that he is training Timothy up as the next leader or another leader to carry the torch of the gospel forward. So the church fathers were the people who might have sat under Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, might have been fed in the feeding of the 5,000, but weren't Jesus' apostles, but they knew the apostles. And so as the apostles begin to die, they're persecuted, they're executed, they pass the torch on to the church fathers. And there is one such father that I've been rather struck by over the last few years is a man named Ignatius, and he's the bishop of Antioch. And I like Ignatius so much that I decided to name my cat after him. And so my cat goes by the full name, St. Ignatius of Antioch Lowe, and that doesn't help me with the ladies at all. I can't imagine why. Um, I just call him Iggy because it's hard to yell at him for biting me with a name that long. But Ignatius' story is interesting. There's a reason that it struck me. The way that his life played out is unique among some of the church fathers. He died very, very old. He lived during a time when it was not outright persecution like you find in the New Testament where people were being dragged into the streets and executed and stoned to death. But rather, there was a simmering undercurrent of persecution. And so it was illegal to be a Christian. They weren't going to hunt you down. But if you were accused of being a Christian then you would have to stand before a Roman jury. And they would ask you to do two things. You had to denounce uh, Christ, and you had to offer a sacrifice and a prayer to the Roman gods to prove that you weren't actually this terrible thing called a Christian. And then they'd let you go, and your life would go back to normal. And so around 60, 70, 80, Ignatius is accused of being a Christian. 
That is an accusation that is entirely accurate. He's a bishop in the church of Antioch where Christianity really first took hold, according to Acts. And, and he's brought before the Roman government. And they ask him, will you renounce this? And he says, no. Will you offer sacrifices? No. So they sentence him to death. But he's not killed on the spot. They decide that they're going to feed him to the lions in the Colosseum. Another great irony of me naming my cat, Ignatius. I think this is hilarious. Nobody else thinks it's funny, but I guess that's just me. And so being an old man and seeing as Antioch is far from where he is, or where he needs to be, rather, which is Rome, uh, he begins a pretty lengthy journey. And uh, over the course of the journey, he has to stop many times throughout it because he's old and because it's a a long trek, and so they have to restock on supplies. And because he's older, because he's not going to run away, he's not a flight risk. I mean, even if he chose to run, he's not going to get very far. Uh, And because he's not going to overpower anybody, he wasn't very well guarded. And so what happened, and this is the really interesting thing about his life and his ministry, is what happens is that he is uh, left in prisons as the, the caravan stops, or he's left in, under house arrest, and the Christian leaders from throughout that town would come and they would visit him because he was so well-known and so widely loved. And when they would come to visit him, they would pray with him, but they wouldn't pray that God would deliver him from his circumstances. Instead, their prayers were that God, were that God would give him the strength to finish the race well in the face of persecution. And Ignatius, in turn, would write letters to the churches in each city that he was in. And he would write to encourage them in the midst of what seems like overwhelming despair that he still had hope, not in this life and not in what he owned, but in his confidence in Christ. And in one such letter, he writes to the church in Ephesus that Paul had written to 60 or 70 years before. And he makes a statement, the tree is made manifest by its fruit. So those that profess themselves to be Christians shall be recognized by their conduct. For there is not now a demand for mere profession, but that a man be found continuing in the power of faith to the end. What he's doing here is he's alluding to a teaching of Jesus in the Gospel of Luke, uh, that, that you will know a tree by its fruit. And for the longest time growing up in church, I heard this over and over, and it never really resounded with me in the way that it did this week. The reality is this, that we could cancel the rest of the service and we could go for a field trip out into the forest behind Bay Life Church. And I, I could serve as your field trip guide because I'm clearly knowledgeable in all things ecological. I'm not. And, and I could point at various trees and I could say, this is an apple tree and this is an orange tree and this is a pear tree and this is a cherry tree. And I can, I can call them whatever I want. We can call them whatever we want. But what makes an apple tree an apple tree? the fact that it produces apples. And it really doesn't matter what I want to call it. If it doesn't produce apples, it's not an apple tree. And that's what Ignatius is saying here. He's saying we live in a time, specifically he lived in a time, where it it doesn't count for much to just say, I'm a Christian, la-di-da. That doesn't mean much if you are not producing the fruit of a Christian any more than me calling a tree an apple tree when it produces oranges makes it an apple tree. It doesn't. And so he goes on and and he says this as he continues to the Ephesians. It is not that I want merely to be called a Christian, but I actually want to be one. Yes, if I prove to be one, then I can have the name. Now, Ignatius lived a long time ago. He lived under very different circumstances than we do. Persecution looked much different for him than it does for us now. But I don't think his words fail to speak to us today. 
because the reality is that we live in a culture that is increasingly hostile to the Christian faith and faith in general. I can't tell you the number of people that I've come into contact with who said, I wasn't really sure about you before because, you know, you're a Christian, and, but you're okay for a Christian, uh, which I guess I take as a compliment. Thank you. Um, how nice of you. But, but the reality is that that title is beginning to carry more and more and more baggage. It has a greater and greater negative connotation. We don't live in a time where we can just call ourselves something and fail to live in light of the name that we've adopted. Which is why I'm so thankful that we as a church are going through the gospel of Luke, that we're looking at the life of Jesus, the God-man in whom we have placed our hope. Specifically, that we are spending time and have spent time in the gospel of Luke chapter six. You can turn in your Bibles there with me. Uh, This is Luke's account of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And it would be worthwhile to note this, uh, that there is no preacher I know of that preaches one sermon one time and never again. And that is in a world of podcasts and iPods and YouTube videos and means by which things can travel. So in the world in which Jesus lived, if you wanted to hear Jesus' sermons, you either had to read a book that he wrote, which he didn't write any uh, at the time that he was doing ministry, or you had to hear it come from his lips. And so it's likely that the Sermon on the Mount is actually a sermon that Jesus would preach in many places so that more people could hear it. And so you find it recorded in Matthew, and it looks a little bit different than what's recorded in Luke. And, in, and I think there's a couple of biblical scholars that would agree that that's because Jesus is preaching this sermon all throughout his Galilean ministry. So Matthew's a little bit longer than Luke. But, but the core of the teaching is this. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is laying down not how to get yourself called a Christian, but how to actually be one. And so he goes through the Beatitudes and he talks about the characteristics of Christians and what their disposition and their heart ought to be. And then he goes through and pronounces these woes and these warnings against the places that have become pitfalls in the lives of so many. He moves on to loving your enemies, praying for those who persecute you, which is uh, some of his most well-known teaching, even among people who aren't believers. He gets to judging others. He says, judge not lest you be judged, for by the same measure which you judge others, so too shall you be judged. And he gets to the passage Ignatius summarized for us, that trees are known by their fruit. Now, the way that preaching worked in the ancient world is a little bit different than the way it works here. So far, nobody has raised their hand to ask me any questions, which is fine. I'd be happy to answer your questions in the corner after service. Uh, In the ancient world, they probably wouldn't have raised their hands either, but not because they weren't engaging. They would have just blurted out questions. If somebody said something that they didn't like, they would just, that's stupid, and proceed to argue with the teacher. It was a lot more interactive and engaging. You can see this even in some of Jesus' other preaching where he says things that the crowds don't like, and we're told that they plug their ears and they, na-na-na-na-na-na, I can't hear you. that's, that's how they treat him, because it, there wasn't this level of audience courtesy. It was much more interactive. And so as Jesus is walking through this sermon, uh, it's not hard for me to imagine that people are engaging with him, and he's, he's teaching uh, on the Beatitudes, and he's pronouncing the woes, and they're asking him questions, and they're maybe agreeing or they're disagreeing with him, and then he gets to loving your enemies, and the crowd is probably uh, a little bit hesitant on this, because the people of Israel had a pretty solid hate for their enemies, and it's kind of manifest in what they hope the Messiah is going to do to the Romans, but maybe Jesus points them back to some scriptures in the Old Testament where God shows mercy on people, and they, they perhaps think through that, and he gets to judging others. And these are people who have spent their whole lives under the judgmental stare of the Pharisees, 
They know what it's like to be judged. And when, when Jesus pronounces a warning against judging others, they probably are, are on board with him at this point. Uh, and they probably take a page from our charismatic brothers and sisters, and there's some yeses, and there's some amens, and there's some praise the Lord, hallelujah, yeah, I like this guy, because nobody likes to be judged. Uh, being judgmental, I, I can't think of a society where that's seen as being a positive personality trait in any way, shape, or form. You don't, on your eHarmony profile list, pina coladas, getting caught in the rain, long walks on the beach, being judgmental is your interests. That's just not what people do, and it won't get you any matches. So they, they likely agree with him on this, and he talks about a tree and its fruit, and they probably track with him on that as well. But then he gets to verse 46, which is where we'll be for the rest of the morning. He says this, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. So I can picture, although the text doesn't expressly say it, I can people tr- picture people tracking with Jesus and engaged with Jesus and interested in what he's saying. And then he kind of ever so gently turns the tables on them. And I don't think this is a, an instance of Jesus being harsh, although he could be harsh when that was necessary. But he just says, what? Why do you keep yesing me and amening me and, and saying, yes, Lord, when you're not actually going to do anything that I'm telling you? Now, that's a question Jesus is asking his original audience, the people who are hearing him, the apostles and the crowds who followed him through Galilee. But it's a question that he also asks of us through this text. Why is it that we are so willing to call him Lord, but so unwilling to do anything that he asks of us as our Lord? And I think all of us can agree, myself included, we're all in the same boat here and that it's way easier to slap the, the Christian bumper sticker on your car and it's way easier to wear the Christian t-shirt to casual Fridays and it's way easier to repost the inspirational Christian video from GodTube on your Facebook and it's, it's way easier to profess him as Lord in these simple actions than it is to actually do what he says as our Lord in our day-to-day lives. And so he asks not just the Galileans and not just the apostles, but you and I. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, when you don't do what I say? So I'd like to propose maybe two reasons, and I'm sure that there's more than just two, but I think they might give us a good starting point as we begin to examine our own hearts. Why do we call Jesus Lord and we don't do what he tells us? Uh, The first reason is this. I think that we fail to respond sometimes because we don't actually know what he tells us to do. We don't actually know what he asks us to do. And let me preface our discussion around this point by saying this, that when Jesus talks about doing what he says, he's not simply talking about the red letters in your New Testament and Acts and the four Gospels and the book of Revelation. Because Jesus understood, as Christians throughout history have understood, that the reality is that there is an author behind the authors in this book, and it is the triune God of which Jesus is one person. And so when Jesus asks, why do you call me Lord and not do what I say, he's not just talking about the red letters, he's talking about the whole of this book. Why do we fail to keep the commandments here, even as we trust this book for our salvation? Now, 
The reality is, as I've said, it's likely that many of us don't keep the commandments of Jesus and don't keep the the call of Scripture on our lives because we don't actually know what it says. And there is a certain element of ignorance here which is understandable. Uh, The reality is there are people in parts of the world who don't have the whole Bible translated into their native language. All they have is a gospel and Acts or maybe the book of John or maybe an epistle. And we can't really hold them liable for the fact that they can't They can't keep the commands of a book that they don't have and have never read. And then I'm not so arrogant as to think that there aren't people here who've just accepted Christ within the last few weeks or months or or even just in this last year. And you're just beginning to know what it means to follow Jesus and you're just beginning to grow in your faith. But if you've been walking with Jesus for five years, 10 years, 15, 20, 50, 60 years and you are still ignorant of the content of this book, that's tragic. Let me read for you some statistics. In 2014, the State of the Bible Report commissioned by the Barna Group and the American Bible Society concluded this. A majority of the adults and evangelical Christians surveyed, 81% to be precise, said that they consider themselves highly, moderately, or somewhat knowledgeable in the Bible. Yet less than half of the people surveyed were even able to name the first five books of the Bible. The year before that, another survey was commissioned with similar numbers. 80 to 90% said that they knew a great deal about the Bible. But less than half of them knew that John the Baptist wasn't one of the 12 apostles. And there's a seminary professor named Kenneth Birding who teaches at Talbot Seminary. He wrote an article for the Christian Post where he recounts two experiences that he's had as a seminary professor training people who want to be pastors and preach the word of God. One student was completely unaware that King Saul in the Old Testament was not the same as Saul who would become Paul in the New Testament. Another student read in the Old Testament that Joshua was the son of Nun and thought that meant that Joshua was the son of a Catholic nun, the celibate order of women. So he not only didn't understand what it means to be celibate, but he also didn't understand that Nun was a name in the Old Testament. Now, these are funny sometimes and tragic other times, but the reality is that survey after survey after study after study shows that for a people who place their hope in the testimony of this book, we are woefully ignorant of what it says. And that is a great tragedy. I'm sitting through a seminary class right now, the history of the Reformation, which was the time in which the Bible was translated into languages that people could read rather than Latin, which nobody spoke. And the number of people who were burned at the stake and torn asunder on the rack and tortured to death just so the Bible could be translated into a language that people could understand is astounding. And it sits on our bookshelves and it gathers dust. If you're a father and you want your family to serve the Lord, then you should be on your face and on your knees before this book every day, asking God for wisdom and understanding and how to interpret it and what it means for your family. If you're a mother and you want your children to know the Lord, the best testimony and guidance that you can give them is to know the voice of Jesus as it speaks through the scriptures which he inspired. Because the great tragedy is one of the reasons that we call him Lord, Lord, and don't do what he says is because we don't know what he says. And we don't know because we haven't read, and we haven't read mostly because we're lazy. The next reason, perhaps, that we call him Lord, Lord, 
and don't do what he says is this. It's not that we don't know, but we fail to respond because we don't actually care. Because I, I do recognize that there are likely people who I have grown up with uh, or have grown up similar to me here. Uh, you, you have a similar background to me. You grew up in a church that preached the Bible faithfully, that proclaimed the gospel, that taught what it meant to follow Jesus well. You know what the Bible says about the boundaries of relationships before they're made uh, and sealed in the covenant of marriage, and you don't care. And you're living with your boyfriend or your girlfriend, or you're physically intimate with them and not married. And it's not that you don't know what Scripture says. It's not that you're ignorant of the boundaries. You just don't care. Or... Or the, the reality is that, that we're perfectly aware of the fact that Scripture tells us we should keep a tight rein on our tongue, that we shouldn't be a people who gossip, but we have no problem being a cog and the greatest cog in the gossip machine around the water cooler, not because we don't know, but because we don't care. Or we know the call that Scripture makes on our marriages, that husbands should love their wives as Christ loved the church, and wives should submit to their husbands and love and honor their husbands. And it's not that we don't know that. We've heard it over and over and over and over again. It's just that we don't really care that much. And what that says, at least in, in my understanding, is that I'm not really interested in knowing the God of the Bible as he has revealed himself in Scripture, but rather I'm interested in encountering a God that never calls me into anything that's difficult, that never disagrees with me, and that never chooses to make me uncomfortable. And I hate to inform you, but if the God that you serve never disagrees with you, you're not serving the God of the Bible. You're serving your own reflection. Because if God never disagrees with you, then that would put you on par with God, and I hate to break it to you, but you're not. And so what, what do we do with this? I mean, the, the first thing that we do, and, and I include myself in this, I'm not saying that I have this all figured out, we have to repent of when our arrogance has led us to think that we can call Jesus Lord in one area of our life, but not another. Abraham Kuyper, who's a Dutch politician and theologian in the 1800s, has become famous for this saying that there's not a single inch of human or a single inch of all of creation over which Jesus Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not declare mine. And when we call him Lord, he must be Lord of all or he must be Lord of nothing. So Jesus goes on and he says this. He offers this analogy illustration. He says, everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he's like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when the flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built his house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell and the ruin of that house was great. So now Jesus draws a parallel, and the interesting thing that a lot of the commentators recognize here is Jesus is probably referencing something that the people he's talking to would have been familiar with. The way that Galilee, where this sermon is uttered, the way that Galilee is just set up geographically is that there's a, a lot of hills. It's a very hilly and mountainous region, and when it rains in the rainy season, it produces flash floods. And so what would often happen is people would move to Galilee with no background in the area, not knowing what was coming in the rainy season, and they would see that it was way easier to get to the sandy spots to build their house because they weren't high on mountains and they didn't have to lug their things up onto the peaks of these hills. And so they would build in the easiest spot, which was the sandy spot, 
and it was a great spot until the flash floods came. And so, the people who were uh, natives of Galilee would just kind of laugh. We found in some of the literature that uh, he must be new. <laughs> He's gonna get his house wrecked, which is kind of a strange hazing, I guess, that the Galileans were thrilled on. But Jesus is pulling a pulling an example from the world around the people he's talking to. Now, I recognize I haven't been to Galilee. Most of us haven't been to Galilee, but there might be a slightly modern parallel. Uh, I had and have, have had the opportunity to uh, travel throughout a huge part of the country uh, just through playing music. And, and a couple summers ago, right after the hurricanes had gone through uh, the Jersey Shore, uh, I drove through Jersey on the way to a show we were playing in New York. And this was when the, the recovery and restoration process was not very far along, so to speak. And so uh, the Jersey Shore looked like something out of like a Mad Max movie. It just looked like it was completely in ruins and houses are upside down and there's sand and homes that are more expensive than anything I've ever owned in my whole life or all of my life put together. And, and it was just kind of a very stark contrast. And so we stayed that night with somebody who was a, a home builder in the area. And, and I asked him as nicely as I could because I didn't want to insult his home building. But I was like, as, as a man who can't change his own tire, I'm just wondering why all these houses just crumbled the way they did because I live in Florida. Hurricanes, we don't even get school off for half the time. Like I, we get hurricanes all the time. And it very rarely looks like that. And his response was, the reality is that the, that the way that we built our houses, they were not ready for what was coming. That we built houses that went up cheaply and they went up quickly, but they could not last because we didn't build them well enough to endure the oncoming storm. If you had taken your homes from Florida and switched them with ours, it would have still been bad, but the houses would have held up better because they're built to last in things like this. This is the parallel that Jesus draws. He says that if you build your life on my word and my promises and the things that I've commanded you to do, you build a house and a life on something that can weather the storm. But we should, we should be clear here because I don't, I don't want the, the truth of Scripture to be contorted. If you've come in here with this understanding that to build your life on the promises of Jesus means that you'll have a life of ease and a carefree life, that's just not what the text is teaching because the reality is the house on the rock and the house on the sand both get hit by the storm. They, they both get hit by the exact same thing, but one is built sufficiently enough and steadfastly enough to survive and the other one is not because it's built on a rock that does not move. Jesus makes this statement in the Gospel of Matthew, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. And it's not easy to build your house on the rock. Jesus indicates that in the text where he says that the person who built on the rock had to dig deep to lay the foundation. It is not easy to live a life of faith. It's not easy to submit to scripture even when you disagree with it. It's not easy to follow the call of God on your life uh, when it calls you to conviction and to repentance and to things that you don't like. But it's so worth it. And it's the only thing that can last in a world that is quickly being washed away. So, here's my hope, is that we as a church would no longer be guilty of failing to keep his commandments, even as we call him Lord, because of our ignorance or because of our arrogance. 
Paul in Colossians says this, as you have received Jesus Christ as Lord, so walk in him. May we always, as Christians, live lives that affirm that he is our Lord with our actions, not just with our lips. May you build your house on the rock. On Christ, the solid rock, we stand. All other ground is sinking sand. Let's pray. We'll be done for the day. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this opportunity to gather around your word, to submit to it, to be taught by it. Lord, we pray that you would conform us to it, that we would no longer be conformed to the patterns of this world. Lord, when we've built straw houses on sand, I pray that you would wash them away, Lord, but that you would give us the strength to build again on your promises and on your word and on your commandments. Lord, I pray that you would give us grace where we've fallen short. Lord, I pray now that your spirit would commission us, send us out into the world as your people uh, to live in a way that honors you, not just as Lord with our lips, but as Lord with our lives. Lord, we thank you for what you're doing among us here at this church, uh, for the mighty work that you're doing in the Rise Up campaign. Uh, God, for all the things that we can anticipate as we celebrate the week uh, from Palm Sunday to Resurrection Sunday. Lord, we ask that you be with us now. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Have a good week. We'll see you all next week.